Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Andy Dimitriou of the Hush Blackwell Firm in Los Angeles. I'm pleased today to have a conversation with my colleague, Kimberly Chu, concerning the development of new ketamine clinics to administer drugs to treat some novel illnesses. With that, I want to introduce Kimberly, who is uh, associated with our firm in Northern California. Kimberly, why don't you take a minute and provide some introduction of yourself and your background? Oh, certainly. Thank you so much, Andy, for the kind introduction. I am at Kimberly Chu, Senior Counsel here at Hush Blackwell and co-leader of the Psychedelic and Emerging Therapies Group. And I help healthcare entities manage their risks and compliance issues when enforcement agencies come to knock at their doors. So today we want to talk about a field that is developing in which you're very actively involved. But let's first start with a discussion about the drug ketamine. Now, it has been approved by the FDA for many years as an anesthetic and for certain pain management purposes. But there is interest in new uses for the drug. So tell us a little bit about how the landscape is changing. Uh, Yes, certainly. As you mentioned, ketamine is an FDA-approved drug, but only for certain uses such as anesthesia. It has been actually much more widely pursued throughout the United States uh, for the treatment of depression or uh, severe forms of complex pain, such as complex regional pain syndrome. Um, And this was after the work by psychiatrist John Crystal at Yale reported its a rapid effect as an antidepressant. And just to back up a little bit, there are several forms of ketamine. They're what are called different enantiomers. So there's an S form and an R form. And on a macro basis, they just change their shape a little bit and how they look in space. So are like the right hand or your left hand. But what also is being widely used in the ketamine clinics in the United States is what's called racemic ketamine, which is just a mixture of the two enantiomers, that is the S form and the R form. So for racemic ketamine, uh, healthcare providers may prescribe drugs for off-label use if judged medically appropriate, and that's what's been going on with racemic ketamine um, that we've been seeing. So there's several routes of delivery, traditionally intravenous, intramuscular, or even sublingual, which is the oral form of ketamine. Generally, these are administered in the clinic, um, but I'll get into a little bit later about some of the precautions that clinicians and anyone, you know, that is cautious about the regulatory atmosphere around, especially sublingual forms of ketamine, should be wary of. And I don't want to overlook this at all, but the FDA has approved a form of S-ketamine, so that's the S form of ketamine, a nail spray that's been commercialized as bravado in 2019 by Janssen Pharmaceuticals for the treatment, and that is for the treatment of depression and suicidality uh, when used in conjunction with the antidepressant. Well, it's very interesting is how this has evolved. And I also understand that beyond depression, uh, there are potentially some uses for people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome and other related conditions. Is that, in fact, what you're seeing? Yes, it's true. So anyone in the behavioral health field is probably well aware that many of the diagnoses kind of overlap. So many patients who are diagnosed with PTSD will also be diagnosed with depression. And a lot of these are kind of like along a continuum rather than a hard diagnosis. So there are other psychedelics that are coming down the FDA pipeline, that is their active clinical trials. There are specifically for PTSD indication. And so right now, since ketamine is being used off-label, it's more up to the physician or clinician 
and their medical judgment as to what the ketamine is being used for. But in PTSD, PTSD is one of those conditions where it's possible to be used for that. So if, if someone were going to set up a ketamine clinic, and we're, we're talking about physicians who probably already were in clinical practice but are going to expand into ketamine therapy, what are the key regulatory things that they need to keep in mind? Um, well, some of the precautions that practitioners should be wary of are things like using compounded ketamine. Now, the compounding of drugs is a process of combining, mixing, or altering the components of a medication to tailor it to the needs of the specific patient, which is pretty useful for someone who's like allergic to the component in the, in the FDA-approved drug, for instance. In this instance, ketamine, racemic ketamine is not FDA-approved for the use of depression, for instance, outside of Spravato. Something to be wary of using these compounded ketamine nasal sprays in particular is that there's just a lack of standardized safety measures. And so because of there's this lack of guidance, patients might be exposed or might experience an adverse event, or it may even lead to potential misuse and abuse of, of a compounded drug. Another thing to be aware of in this, in this space is that if a clinician decides to use sublingual tablets, which is an oral form of ketamine, and then prescribe that sublingual tablet to be taken at home, though this is not an in-clinic use administration, Oftentimes, these businesses have been using these sublingual tablets in conjunction with telehealth medicine as part of their delivery of care. And in that case, there's a risk that the patient could, you know, collect all the tablets and abuse the drug, which is something to be very leery of. Uh, another thing that physicians and business owners of ketamine clinics need to be aware of is the changing landscape with the telehealth that's been coming in conjunction with the ending of the public health emergency and uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So just to back up a little bit, there's the Ryan Hate Act online. It's called the Ryan Hate Online Pharmacy and Consumer Protection Act that was passed back in 2008, which outlines specific circumstances in which a controlled medication could be administered or could be prescribed via telehealth. And so over the pandemic, these restrictions were loosened by the DEA, by the Drug Enforcement Agency. And so you could, a lot of these businesses rely on the fact that these regulations have been loosened and that the ketamine can't be prescribed and mailed to the patient in the mail and then have a telehealth component. So it eliminated the in-person requirement. But in March of this year, March of 2023, the DA proposed changing this rule, again, restrict the circumstances in which a controlled substance could be prescribed, but then it backed down. So currently the ability to prescribe a controlled medication remotely via telehealth will currently run through November 11th, 2023. So I want to come back to an issue you talked about, which is the question of some of the dangers of the use of the drug and the compounding risks associated with it. Are there issues concerning the, the quality of some of the drugs that are getting out there or otherwise concerns about compounding pharmacies or others who may be developing the specialized formulations at the direction of the physician? Yes, there has been uh, lawsuits over these compounding sprays in which there has been, uh, it appears that they're not, you know, the percentage that is the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredient that it's not evenly distributed throughout the spray and other issues besides concentration. They're just not regulated by the FDA, the comp these compounding pharmacies. So it's really difficult to control the quality of the product that the patient is being exposed to. So yes, there is a concern about the quality of the product itself in that case. And 
in the instance, coming back to another issue you touched on, where the patient receives a supply, let's assume by, by mail order or uh, otherwise through an Internet offering, what are the consequences if the patient begins to uh, self-administer the drug? Are, are there hazards associated there? And do we have any studies that have, have indicated potential problems due to abuse of the drug? Oh, yes. So ketamine is recreationally used. And so there's always the issue that that could be happening. So ketamine is an anesthetic. It could knock the patient out. It has effects on your blood pressure in particular and heart rate, depending on how the individual responds. I heard a lot of these clinicians speak about how their their precaution is to actually prescribe super low dose amounts of ketamine and only prescribe certain, you know, small amounts of ketamine at a time and then have telehealth visits in between. So hopefully, you know, their practices are that they have enough precautions built into their practice that this will not be a problem, but that's always a possibility just because ketamine does have an abuse potential. Because this is a new and, and some people would regard as unconventional therapeutic use, what's the situation in terms of reimbursement? Obviously, doctors and others have to be focused on whether they're going to be paid for providing the service. Are, are there payments available either through private insurance or governmental health programs or other sources? Well, currently, no. Many ketamine clinic services are considered out-of-pocket um, and they're pretty costly at this point. Uh, if the if the clinician is administering bravado, that's administered under a REMS, and that is FDA approved. And Medicare actually does offer payment for bravado if the clinician follows the appropriate Medicare guidelines and rules for payment. What about private insurance? Private insurance, it will cover, I think it depends on the insurance, if it will cover Spravato since it's FDA approved, but it, private insurance will not cover the racemic or the, the IV or intramuscular or sublingual forms of ketamine. That seems to be more popular um, in the ketamine space and being used in a ketamine clinic. Those seem to be all out-of-pocket type of expenses and not covered any other any insurance. We have heard from some clients that there has been some luck in using kind of generic codes, but if you use generic codes, like you say you're you know administering this amount of drug, you might get a reimbursement based on that, but you always run the risk that there could be an audit and then there would be a clawback of whatever insurance is paid. There's just a risk. It, most of them are out of pocket. Well. And, of course, if you start to have government payments for ketamine-related therapies, whether through the Medicare program, Medicaid program, or otherwise, you have all of the potential risks associated with fraudulent claims and other related regulatory aspects. Have you been giving any thought to how that might work if the reimbursement environment changes? Yes. So if the reimbursement environment changes, clinic owners should be wary of any, any of those fraud and abuse laws that you just mentioned, so Stark laws, anti-kickback statutes, all, all those things, anything that involves uh, Medicare payment, that will come into play at both the federal and state level. And there's state-level mini Stark laws, for instance. So depending on where your clinic is located, there's different things that they will have to pay attention to. And that's if they're trying to get Medicare to pay for any of these services. Is there any legislation pending or other uh, developments that might change the reimbursement landscape? Not legislatively that I am aware of. In terms of ketamine, I am aware that there is a big push to get ketamine into clinical trials, that is. 
So if they can get pushed, if they can push ketamine, uh, especially IV ketamine, into clinical trials, uh, then we're, which is going to be a big expense and so forth, then they can get FDA approval and then you can go down that route of once it's FDA approved, then insurance can come in and help pay for all or some of these services, hopefully. So there was a, there was an effort by some associations to get a national coverage determination for ketamine, IV ketamine in particular, and that was unsuccessful. So my understanding is that they are now attempting to raise money and funds to do IV ketamine as a clinical trial and see if they can get payment through health insurance that way, through the FDA approval route. Have the manufacturers of the drug considered whether they would provide financial support as, uh, you know, drug companies do for other therapies that are expensive and not always covered. And I I don't know whether the manufacturers of ketamine, because it's been around for a while, are going to be inclined to do that. But but maybe you could comment on whether you heard anything on that front. I I have not heard anything on that front. I yeah, I'm not aware of the manufacturer. As you as you just mentioned, Andy, these have been approved for a long time. That IV ketamine especially is for surgery. Uh, It's been approved. And so at this point, it's not even protected under a patent. So yeah, I I don't believe that there is any financial incentive for the manufacturer at this point. I have not heard of anything in the grapevine to provide payment, unfortunately, for the patients that are seeking to use this off-label. Well, I want to touch on on a final issue that's important, which is, is there an evolving standard of care for some of these new uses of ketamine? And is there guidance from either professional associations or from the government that might put any constraints on prescribing of ketamine in in the new forms that you're talking about for these emerging sort of conditions where it it may be applicable and beneficial? Yeah, that's an interesting point and great point for clinicians to consider. You know, they face patients who are at the end of the rope and they want, they're willing to try something that's emerging, a new therapy that they heard of in hopes of healing. But this area of medical malpractice is murky. Ketamine is a developing field. So there's no consensus among the experts on the standard of care. But in this field, for ketamine at least, the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, has offered some suggestions. So it's things like before the administration of ketamine that the patient should be screened for certain conditions. And they need to, as a provider, you need to weigh the risks and benefits of the treatment how urgent the patient's condition is, consider the patient's medical history, and the clinician ought to be licensed to administer a DEA Schedule Three medication along with the Advanced Cardiac Life Support Certification. Uh, and that's probably because ketamine can affect heart rate and blood pressure. So they also recommend site-specific standard operating procedures for delivery of ketamine treatments, which is very useful and clinicians, practitioners to consult when setting up their practices. Well, Kimberly, this has been uh, very enlightening. It's uh, obviously a new area where there's a lot of ferment and development, and we really appreciate your taking the time today to have this conversation with me about this emerging field. Thank you, for uh, again, for providing your expertise, and we appreciate our listeners. This has been a recording of the ABA Voices in Health Law podcast. If you want more content from the ABA Health Law section, and listen to narrations of the section's award-winning publications, the ABA Health eSource and the Health Lawyer, you can register with the ABA Health Law Audio app. The service is available for purchase to non-section members and is free for all members of the Health Law section. Go to modiolegal.com 
slash subscribe slash ABA hyphen health hyphen lawyer to subscribe today. Thank you for your attention.